Two and a Half Admins, episode 80. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got a couple of plugs this time, Alan. First one, Unix philosophy, the ideas that made Unix. Yep, uh, this is our regular blog post, uh, just talking about the Unix philosophy and where it came from and and how, why it's still so useful today. Okay, and the other one is a webinar that you and Jim did together. Yes, you missed it live, but uh, the recording is up on our website now. So if you want to learn about recovery objectives, Jim and I did quite a bit of detail on that. Talking RTO, RPO, recovery time endpoint objectives, and uh, how to min-max that stuff. Obviously, all using ZFS. Obviously. All right, well, links in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the first one, I've heard described as a mini Y2K or 2038. That seems a bit exaggerated to me, but this is about browser numbers getting to 100. Chrome is going to be first, Firefox shortly afterwards, and some websites are not going to like that. Yeah, like the article points out, you know, this happened when Opera hit version 10 back in 2009 and it caused a bunch of problems. And Firefox hit the same problem when it went from one digit to two when it hit 10. And I remember seeing similar issues with even FreeBSD with things like auto tools. Uh, it would look at the version number and be like, oh, your version number looks like it starts with a one. So that must mean you're using FreeBSD 1.0, which doesn't support shared libraries. And then it would fail to compile stuff. If you look, AutoTools has all these hacks now to check where OS version numbers were went up to 10 uh, and then does the right thing now. And like the article says, Google's anticipated that this might be a problem and they added a flag you could set in your uh, browser and Chrome slash flags or whatever, like uh, the about config on Firefox to basically force the major version over 100 so that uh, web developers could test this. I think the main thing it's going to cause is, you know, lots of websites check the version of your browser to make sure it's big enough that it's going to support the JavaScript or whatever they want. Like I've seen, I use uh, Firefox ESR, the long-term support version. And I've seen like, I think it was Bloomberg's website being like, yeah, your Firefox is only version 91. You should upgrade or our website won't work right. How many times, how many ways are we going to have to have the Y2K problem before developers stop being lazy bastards? Why are you using ESR? Because it doesn't change frequently. <laughs> they don't move the buttons on me and change the look of the tabs and just make my life miserable. <laughs> I'm a creature of habit. Don't move my buttons. I see. Fair enough. This reminds me of why we went from Windows 8 and 8.1 to Windows 10. Because you could and anything was preferable? No, because uh, any Windows that started with 9 might be considered Windows 95, right? Or Windows 98 or Windows 9X. Oh, you mean why Microsoft made it 10 instead of 9? Yeah. The collective we. The collective we that includes Bill Gates and Joe Ressington in the same group. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course, what Windows 7 was version 6.1 and Windows 8 was like 6.3 or something, right? <laughs> like the actual version of the kernel under the hood. Madness lies down that path. Best not to stray too far. <laughs> yeah. So do you think this is really going to be a problem then? Or are people going to deal with it? Some old websites are definitely going to have the problem. Uh, it's kind of inexcusable because it's like, what, what are you checking? <laughs> the user agent is a string. I, I don't know that JavaScript gives you something as a number. And because they have decimals in it and JavaScript only does floating point, you know, it gets complicated. But it doesn't seem like something that should be a problem. But Mozilla anticipates issues too, and they have 
uh, a bunch of links in the article for that. Even Microsoft assuming that their Edge thing, because it's based on Chrome, is going to have a bunch of problems too. I think a lot of the issue is just, you know, web developers checking version numbers in some cases are some of the laziest developers known to man. And, you know, on a scale of every website on the internet, I mean, any change is going to cause a problem, right? Flashbacks to websites that would be like, oh, you're you're not using Internet Explorer. This website yeah. won't work. Best viewed in IE4. <laughs> yeah. I remember when, you know, I first started using Firefox and not every website was <laughs> appreciating that. And it's like, good God. Yeah, I remember that as well. Like having to use IE for the occasional site, like banking and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it was mostly like most of the times the website would work fine if you could convince the website to just let it try. Exactly. That was the thing that drove me nuts is 99% of those sites that would refuse to load if you weren't, you know, advertising a banner of IE4. The only thing that broke them on other browsers was the devs deliberately causing the site to refuse to render if they didn't think you were running IE. Yeah. And it was just, it's, oh, if you're not running IE, it must be something old. It's like, or, you know, it's a couple of years later and something new has been invented. So presumably for websites that do get broken by this, you'll be able to spoof the user agent to say it's 99 or whatever. That's a good point. Chrome has this thing to force the major version above 100 ahead of time, but they don't seem to have an option to go the other way. There's bajillions of plugins out there to modify your user agent string to whatever you want. So yeah, party like it's version 99. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen other software where they got stuck with this kind of problem and they just had version 99 dot thing (laughs) and it would just keep going up and it would always be 99 dot something forever. Actually, at New Year's, didn't that that was kind of what Microsoft had to do with the version number on their virus scanner database, right? Because they they had the the problem where it wouldn't convert to an integer anymore. That was at least an actual integer overflow, though, and not just like developers that were too lazy to look at all three digits of a number when they were comparing two numbers. Right. Or in particular, it appears that most of them, because the user agent is a string, they don't try to convert it to an integer. They try to compare it as a string. And so they're checking each digit separately or something. Which just, again, what the hell? Who does that? Part of the problem is because the version number has a decimal in it and JavaScript only does floating point numbers, version 97.4 is not going to come out as 0.4. It'll get morphed into like 97.399999 or something. It's just, uh, it's just not that hard. It's just not. But uh, yeah, if, if things suddenly start breaking, at least you'll know why. And then install Firefox ESR. <laughs> so Samsung shipped 100 million Android phones with flawed encryption. Yeah, and it turns out that uh, whoever they had implementing the crypto didn't read the instructions. I didn't know this was about Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> so researchers at Tel Aviv University reverse engineered uh, the Keymaster app and were able to show that they can construct an initialization vector reuse attack. So basically it turns out that Depending on the uh, encryption algorithm we're using, and here specifically it's AES-GCM, in order to make the same message encrypted different times not always the same, you're supposed to pick a, a random initial vector. So it's basically just a little bit of randomness you use in addition to the key so that if I encrypt the same message to Joe two different times, they don't come out identical. And it turns out that Samsung used the same one all the time. This is exactly why crypto libraries should be versioned and not agile. When you build these toolkits, agile, meaning you get to plug in like all your own crap and, you know, whatever way, pick your algorithm, pick how you generate keys, you know, yada, yada, yada. You're going to get things wrong. It's too complex. Yeah. 
Well, and like there are other restrictions at AES-GCM. You're not supposed to encrypt more than four gigabytes of it without changing the IV uh, and so on. Otherwise, the, the keys are weak and, you know, there's... There's not that many rules, but there are a couple that you do need to follow them. <laughs> it's not necessarily even so much about how many rules they are, it's just how complex they are and how much of an understanding you need to have of the domain for them to really sink in. I mean, you need a ton of really expert peer review on a complete cryptographic system, which is why you should not leave these things as just like a, a collection of bits and bobs that can be put together, you know, well or poorly, or somewhere in between. Like, you need to come up with a versioned crypto library that handles all these things and has been thoroughly reviewed by everybody, and you can just implement it and know you've done things the right way. And then when somebody finds something wrong with it, you go from version 1.1 to version 1.2, and everybody knows, oh, you don't have to know, like, oh, well, you're reusing, you know, you're reusing a key or you're running too much data through it before you change a key. You know, all these different things or it's the wrong algorithm. It's not tons and tons of little pieces. You just literally have to know, oh, am I using version 1.1 or version 1.2? Oh, 1.1 is old. I should upgrade. That is the most complexity that should really be left to anybody but the actual developers of the crypto library. Implementers should not really be getting into those waters. So this isn't quite rolling their own crypto then? No, so it's using AES-GCM. They just didn't follow the couple of sentences of instructions for, you know, when you call the function to do the encryption, you have to provide a bunch of values. One of those is the IV or the salt, and that salt needs to be unique every time so that if you encrypt the same message with the same key a second time, the messages won't be identical because otherwise an attacker can use that to eventually figure out what the key was and decrypt the messages. Yeah, that number has to be a nonce, right? Basically, yes. <laughs> You're a nonce. <laughs> the same thing applies to like disk encryption with AES-XTS. Uh, you know, the, the IV is supposed to be the sector number. So every sector on the disk has a, a different value so that if you have the same two copies of the same file on your disk somewhere, they've encrypted differently. So an attacker can't use that to figure out your key and be able to decrypt all of your files. Uh, this is surprisingly, we discovered that the Android client is allowed to set the IV when generating or importing a key. All that is necessary is to place an attacker chosen IV as part of the key parameters, and it is used by the key master tool instead of a random IV, meaning that when somebody went and implemented this, they just always gave it the same value. As the Android environment also controls the application ID and the application data, this means that an attacker can force a key master to reuse the same key and IV that were previously used to encrypt other V15 or V20 uh, blobs. Since AES-GCM is a stream cipher, the attacker can now recover harbor-protected keys from the key blobs. Whoops. Let's do a bit of feedback then. An anonymous person got in touch to say, I just wanted to make you all aware that this latest Mazda debacle is not their first. They had an issue when drivers listened to the Roman Mars 99% Invisible podcast, locking up and resetting radios. It seemed the title including a percent sign followed by a capital I was the problem. Pretty sad that the title of media can lock up the system. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to guess that it was assuming uh, like H... TTP encoding, so percent followed by a two-digit hex thing to make any symbol, but I isn't a hex digit, and so kablooey. It's a lot more likely than what immediately popped in my head. I hear percent I, and I'm immediately thinking like, you know, exargs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anon goes on to say, this was discovered back in 2019. 
I would have thought that this incident would have triggered an in-depth code review, but apparently not. Buyer beware. I would have thought that OneDrive not allowing file names with a dollar sign in them would have triggered some kind of response, but also apparently not. I don't know if that's still the case now, but I know it was the case for years because it was a constant thorn in my side. Yeah, because that's like NTFS uses file names to start with a dollar sign as the like internal stuff, like the the MFT and, and a bunch of other gubbins. Completely unrelated. Doesn't matter. It, it was a SharePoint thing because OneDrive is built on SharePoint. And for whatever reason, whenever they were doing file validation on SharePoint, they decided that dollar sign would just be persona non grata in a file name, despite it being completely legal on NTFS, FAT32, whatever. You can, if you weren't able to put dollar signs in your file names on Windows, it never would have been a problem for me because the problem was that users at this particular construction company were just constantly saving, you know, bid quotes, you know, with like dollar amounts in the file name. And that file, not only would that file not sync to OneDrive, when the OneDrive agent encountered that file, it would just stop. It wouldn't sync anything else either. It'd just be like, nope, I hate you. Everything would stop syncing and it would not sync any longer until you found and got rid of the file with the dollar sign. Now, to be fair, dollar sign was not the only character that was illegal for OneDrive and not for NTFS. It's just that was the one that was a continual pain in the ass with that particular client because I could not break them of wanting to put dollar amounts in file names. Really raises questions about who does the QA on that stuff because that seems like one of the first things you test. Yeah. And it's like, how come I'm allowed to put Japanese characters in the file name, but not a dollar sign? Yeah. Yeah, you could put a poop emoji in the file name, <laughs> but not a dollar sign. Sean got in touch about the Caddy web server. He said, Jim argued that it shone most when handling containers, but didn't offer much benefit in more traditional web server roles. And I wanted to share my own experience with web servers just as a hobbyist. When I was first setting up my website on a VPS, I was using Nginx, and while it was fine... The configuration, as someone not used to it, wasn't friendly. Configuring SSL to be secure and use the latest ciphers and TLS versions required some work and finding snippets online, as did setting up headers for reverse proxy applications. In contrast, setting up the same site with Caddy was just four lines of configuration. The defaults are saying the automated SSL setup was effortless and used a secure cipher set without any tweaking, and it really did just work. I don't disagree with Jim and Alan's point, but I would say for people who aren't doing PHP sites, who are using their server as a static server or as a reverse proxy, there's something nice about Caddy's simplicity and ease of use, even if it doesn't eke out the same performance of Nginx or Apache. Right, but the key thing here, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that fit Sean's workflow really well, but the key thing here is he's talking about, again, one site. So whether he's containerized it or not, he's basically using the workflow that I already said Caddy is great for. You know, when you've got a single site, which is typically when you're serving that, you're serving it in containers, but also a hobbyist who only has one site to serve will do that. When you want to serve 20 or 30 sites off of the same machine, Caddy's configs become much less friendly. The Nginx SSL configuration is not insecure by default. It's not going to get the highest grade on like SSL labs or whatever, but it's basically whatever the defaults of OpenSSL are. And the idea is that it's the compatible config. It's the thing that's going to have the most clients be able to connect to your web server because that's usually the point of having a web server, not of only supporting the latest and greatest TLS. Not that it's bad to disable old versions that aren't supported anymore, but 
sometimes there are still clients kicking around that shouldn't be. What, the point of a web server isn't keeping out the filthy casuals, Alan? No, it's, it's putting bits on the wire. I remember the debate about forcing SSL, and that means that Windows XP users are just locked out. Oh, no. Does it really, though? Like, if you're running Firefox and Windows XP... I don't think the latest Firefox is still supported on XP, though. Well, probably not now, no. We're talking about when XP was still a... Well, it wasn't really reasonable to be using it still, but it was a thing that people cared about. You'd be surprised at how many XP installations are still going strong. You'd be surprised at how much I don't care about them. <laughs> no, I don't think I would, actually, funnily enough. Probably not. I definitely ran into that, like, my car dealership. When my brother-in-law worked there, I gave them an old like 500 megahertz machine because they needed something to run their tire alignment thing. And it was Windows 98 and they needed hardware old enough to support that. And basically they there was a Windows XP or a newer version of the software, but the, the company wanted like 50 grand to upgrade their tire alignment machine to do that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you can have one of the machines in my basement. And they just, you know, did my next service for free. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your feedback or your questions for Jim and Alan, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Yuri did. He says, I was doing some maintenance on my home server ripping out some unused PCI cards and hard drives, and ran into a problem. FreeBSD won't boot because Gelly can't decrypt disks because all their order and names got changed. And the Gelly kernel module only recognizes disks by names, not by UIDs. While my problem isn't that hard to fix, it wouldn't be very trivial if I didn't already have it booting from a UEFI partition on a USB drive that's easy to modify with any laptop. Now, I keep wondering... Why doesn't FreeBSD have a proper initRD-like process set up like Linux does? If something like initRD was used for FreeBSD, the Gelly kernel module wouldn't even have to have all the initialization code in it. Instead, we could have a smart initRD script and allow the admin to set up the boot process as they want. Even if they wanted something crazy like decrypting a key for iSCSI-mounted root with TPM, or even more layers for that. I know about reboot-r, that is the critical piece to implement this, and I can hack together an init script using it and place it on some temporary root FS, but it leaves a lot of open questions. What should that root file system be? Separate ZFS pool or dataset? 
MDMFS-based image, something NanoBSD, how to install or do you use the space in it? And without integration into the rest of the system, how would I upgrade it? What do you think about initRD on FreeBSD in general? Do you know of any work done in this field? So having an init RAM disk would be a progression in FreeBSD, I think. Like the fact that our bootloader can understand the file systems and load stuff without needing to have a miniature version of the file system or the, the whole operating system to do that is an advantage. I don't know what problem you're running into here. Like normally, if you're using a FreeBSD install from like 10.2 or later, like not upgrading a really old install, the bootloader, whether it's UEFI or the old legacy BIOS one, both support Geli natively. So the, the bootstrap thing can then load the bootloader off the encrypted disk by just prompting you for the password. And it loads all the disks that way and doesn't require anything in a config file that's static to the name. I'm just going to break in for a second and mention that there's a, a very detailed article on uh, Alan's company site, clarasystems.com, outlining how FreeBSD's bootloader actually works that is uh, well worth a read. And we'll put that link in the show notes. Yeah, and kind of related, actually, there, if uh, Jim, maybe you can quickly find it. There's one about how to do this with ZFS encryption. Like if you have a rented server where it will boot in an unencrypted system that you can SSH into, load the keys for the encrypted system, and then use that reboot-r, which is uh, reroute, to switch over to the encrypted root file system. But anyway, uh, back to the question here. So only in like FreeBSD 9 did you have to put lines in rc or in uh, boot slash loader.conf with like device name and, and point to where the key file was for each one. And those can use the more UID-based device names. Like you can point it to the uh, slash dev slash disk ID version of the disk rather than, you know, like DA7 or whatever that, that will get renumbered. So you can use UIDs there instead if, if you are still using a key file or something. Uh, I guess it really depends on some more of your setup that you didn't detail in your question here. But in general, the UEFI partition doesn't actually contain any of the config. Like the, the UEFI partition on FreeBSD is just loader.efi, which has enough in it to support decrypting Geli and uh, booting your system that way. And then, you know, the bootloader has enough in it that it can understand the encryption and ZFS and load the kernel directly instead of needing an RD. If you do need to do scripting that early, there's a line you can put in your loader.conf init underscore script. And that script gets run before RC and allows you to do things like mount extra data sets or something. I've used that before to uh, have slash ETC actually be a separate data set in ZFS. Also, I think, you know, the simplest way to address one of Yuri's final questions, what should that root file system be without integration? How do I upgrade it? Yada, yada, yada. I don't think there's a, and Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I personally don't know of a great use case for Geli at this point other than legacy stuff. You're already on FreeBSD. I would certainly recommend just doing OpenZFS everything and use OpenZFS encryption. Which is the, the, what the second link describes how to do. So the FreeBSD bootloader doesn't actually support booting directly from an encrypted data set so that you would have your, your slash data set not encrypted, but you can still have your home directory and stuff encrypted. So if you do need the full disk encryption, Geli is still the right answer. But if you've done a modern install of FreeBSD, it will just prompt you for the password during boot and it will find all the right disks and do it all, and you don't need... There's nothing that reordering the disks is going to break like you described. 
you've definitely done a custom setup if you have your UEFI partition on a USB stick uh, and done something very special here. Uh, and maybe that's why you're running into trouble. But uh, the two links Jim's put in the show notes here will definitely help you with the process. And if you just look at moving to a more modern way of setting up Gelly on FreeBSD, it will not have any of these problems. And yeah, the best way is to have your root file system being the real root file system uh, with Gelly and letting the bootloader take care of it, because that way it's all one ZFS pool and you can use boot environments like normal. Uh, whereas if you do want to do the, like Jim suggested, the open ZFS native encryption way, then the second article talks about how to have a non-encrypted root system that you can boot. And, you know, especially for like a remote server where you want to be able to SSH in to type in the decryption passwords and then reroute into the root that has the uh, sensitive data in it. Okay, Mike, who is also a patron and skipped the queue, writes, I have a small install, two servers that I run Proxmox VE on using ZFS for the storage. Proxmox has the ability to cluster using the CoroSync engine. I'm wondering if that is the best way to keep the VMs in sync between the two physical hosts, or if the best option is to use Syncoid and Sunoid to keep the VM datasets in sync between the machines and manually handle the failover when it happens. I haven't completed the setup as I'm currently adding the second server to the site now, so I'm not set on either path. I already have two different off-site backups set up, so the goal of this setup is to be able to recover quickly from a server hardware failure or a major human error scenario. Well, I might be biased, but I am personally uh, much more a fan of the syncoid scenario, doing manual replication and manually failing over if and when you need to. High availability can easily cost you nines rather than granting them to you because there are any number of scenarios where you can have a split brain where both servers decide that they are the primary server and they're active and the other one isn't and you end up with half your office connected to one and half connected to the other. And recovering from that is a lot more painful than just dealing with the five or ten minutes it takes you to spin up the VMs on the, the failover host manually. Yeah, especially if you're in the situation where changes have been made on both sides and you don't want to lose either of them. It's like, well, that's not how that works. Yep. So CoroSync might have the advantage of it's trying to be more synchronous. So like as the change happens, the VM is trying to write to both hosts and not acknowledge it until it's done, which is either going to be really slow or it's going to fake it a little bit uh, and be partly async. And then at that point, you know, ZFS is going to do a slightly nicer job. I'm guessing the main advantage to the cluster slash CoroSync thing is that it's kind of built into Proxmox and it'll set it up for you. But that just means that when it goes wrong, you'll have no understanding of how it's configured. So I'm with Jim and I'd fall back to just using the ZFS and, you know, not trying to be to the second real-time failover and instead just be like, you know, we're to a couple minutes of, of ZFS replication async. How often can you set it up realistically to do that? Can you have it every like two minutes or are you thinking more like every 15 minutes? You can make the snapshots very frequently, although at some point it will start to slow the server down just because, well, like the disks will get a bit slow just because you're doing a full sync uh, for every snapshot. But I don't know, what's practical, do you think, Jim, for the actual replication? It really depends on, you know, the volume of data that they're changing. I, I don't think there's a hard and fast limit on it. Ultimately, you can typically try to replicate as frequently as you want. There's not a whole lot of penalty for trying to replicate too often, because what will happen is if you're still in the process of the last replication and you ask it to begin another one, it's just going to fail out and say, no, I can't because that data set's busy. 
It's not really going to cost you anything. You just, if you're trying to replicate every minute and you can't during a particularly busy time, then during that particularly busy time, you may have a five minute break between successful replications, but it's not going to actually break anything. Beyond that, the issue with replicating too frequently is you capture a lot of ephemeral data that you might not have otherwise. So you, you discussed VMs. Uh, one big example of that is going to be things in C, Windows Temp, or uh, in a user's app data folder. You know, stuff that applications are just constantly churning like little bits of crap out to the disk that aren't very long-lived and will be deleted or written over again in very short order. So if you wait longer between replications, you don't have to replicate as much of that because you don't get every possible version of it. The more frequently you replicate, the more frequently you snapshot, the longer lived you make that ephemeral crap that's really just supposed to appear and disappear again in relatively short order. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your feedback or your questions. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.